The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock podcast with your host, Dave Oscuro. Happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock podcast. I am your host, Dave. Today, my guest is one of my oldest and dearest friends. I've known Chris. I think I met him when I was 17, So, and I'm 40 now. I think we're going on close to 25 years of being friends, uh, being bandmates, and being comrades. You know, Chris is one of those people who um, I'm always at awe at his, his, his knowledge of history uh, and philosophy and his ability to bring a real academic perspective to a lot of the situations and issues that we're dealing with today. Um, he is the person who introduced me to socialism and Marxism at a, at a young age, much to my mother's dismay, but uh, that's another story for another time. And he's always someone who I've always been able to lean on and respect to bring a very fair and intellectual perspective to any given situation. He's someone who I think has, has been able to cut through some of the the bite-sized rhetoric that we see a lot on you know social media and just in the news and mainstream media in general and and offer con- historical context to why certain things are or not the way that they are and so i hope that um you all enjoy this podcast with chris i hope that you check out his podcast the regrettable century i think they d- i hope that you check out his podcast the regrettable century i think they do an amazing job of again tackling sort of uh, lofty ideas and philosophies and break them down in a way that is not only easy to I, to digest uh let me take that back and break them down in a way that is digestible but not easy challenging still uh and and gives you reason to think and also applies it to the world at large as we are existing to it's not simply a podcast centered around looking backwards and waxing poetic about ancient philosophers it's really focusing on taking those learnings, distilling them, and then and then make them relevant to the world that we're living in right now. So I appreciate Chris for his time. I hope that you all enjoy it. And without further ado, this is Chris from The Regrettable Century. For those who maybe haven't heard your podcast, The Regrettable Century, what would be what's your like your your one or two line description for what you guys do on that podcast and what kind of themes you're exploring? Well, we are all former members of socialist organizations that were really disaffected by being involved in the American left, which we think is really internalized uh, neoliberalism and become ineffective and, and atomized. So our project is really one about trying to go back through the history of leftism and Marxism and, you know, anarchism and whatever else and try to find the good parts of it that are worth internalizing and learning from and, uh, you know, try to build a coherent set of not really beliefs, but try to like salvage basically the, the, the good things about leftism that I think, Mm -hmm. 
are, are there buried beneath all of the, the rubble of, of what exists now. And in doing so, I think one of the things that we're really about, and I think this is probably what uh, lends, the, there's, there's some crossover here, is that we don't think that spirituality is something to be eschewed. You know, like a lot right. of a lot of leftists are very, very atheistic and uh, scientistic and uh, against spiritual spirituality, against God, against, you know, uh, anything that they would consider to be superstition. And we think that there's room for that, you know, and all of us are practitioners of some sort of spirituality. Like I lean a, a little bit more towards a, a mitigated but orthodox Christianity. And, you know, we've got like a, a neo-pagan guy on the show and and then um, there's Kevin and then my brother who's sort of bouncing around trying to figure out what it is that he thinks, but he's squarely within the Western esoteric tradition. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what our show's about. We're trying to, we're trying to, you said a two line summary. That was more like a 14 line summary. <laughs> that, that's, in, that's in keeping with your podcast. So it's a, it's yeah, it fine. is. <laughs> but the one thing that I really appreciate with what you said here and why I like listening to your podcast is number one, you don't shy away from spirituality, which when we came up, um, you know, when my first, which was predominantly through you, my first introduction mm -hmm. with, with socialism and Marxism, it was very rooted in, in um, atheism. You know, it was very, yeah, I mean, I was 19 and I was mad at my mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. It was very devoid of spirituality. And I think it, yeah. I mean, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't really hang out in those circles, but it feels like it's still in that. It's still not the norm to embrace spirituality, although possibly paganism. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. But, um, you know. Well, I mean, so so like within more like radical liberals, uh, radlib uh, circles um, and some anarchist circles, paganism, I think, is uh, certainly in vogue. Uh, right. Not necessarily ceremonial magic, though, uh, which generally tends to be real popular among right wingers. So, like, is that so weird too? It's very weird, but it's because like it, it's it's very nostalgic throwback towards like nineteenth century esotericism, nineteenth uh, right. and twentieth century esotericism, which were of uh, generally people in well, in the anglophone world anyway, uh, among the aristocracy and upper middle class who generally leaned conservative. Right. But um, I mean, like. Like Crowley specifically was not a terribly progressive person. Um, uh, I mean, in some regards, but in other regards, he was openly bisexual. He was very for sexual liberation. I mean, politically though, like socially, yes, he was more progressive. But politically, he was a. I think he was a Tory or like a, he was a conservative. If, uh, if I, I don't know. Yeah, my, my I might be wrong. Is, that's what I with Crowley is he probably didn't really care about politics all that much. I think he sort of found bits and pieces of things that he liked. Um, yeah. which actually is actually very accurate for all of it's very at, Crowley. If, yeah. If you look at what Crowley put together with Alima and all that, it's very yeah. much like he, he picks and chooses what he likes at any given time. If it serves his overall message. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. he's a rich dude. He was a trust fund baby, essentially, you know, most of these old mystics that we all sort of derive our, our spiritual path from, or, or some of that knowledge got handed down from, they almost, entirely were independently wealthy which allows them the time and and the space to be able to to inquire these these questions of mystery right i was gonna say i don't think that the the fact that old i don't think that the fact that old rich guys used to be into it is a bad thing like whatever that's fine <laughs> you don't have to be into into 
not everything you do in your entire life has to have some sort of like revolutionary or left-wing facade in order for it to be uh, useful to you and like fulfilling. Right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things where I got um, disillusioned with leftism to some degree is a, what passes for leftism these days doesn't really resemble what I got brought up on. So, so the, it's, it's like no. you said, it's, it's neo, it's neoliberalism predominantly with a, with a red rose in the Twitter bio. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it also really seems devoid of, and we've said this before back on maybe where the very first podcast, the enchantment of life, right? Everything in the early yeah. days was about revolution and was about politics and was about um, class and and everything else sort of went, everything was very utilitarian, it felt like. And everything else was sort of pushed to the outside and was sort of deemed unimportant. And anything that wasn't 100% focused on preparing for a revolution was deemed frivolous, it felt like to me, anyhow. And including spirituality, right? Um, I, I often will yeah. sort of... I would often refer to sort of Nietzsche talking about when he declared that we killed God, that what we, we, we never really adequately replaced him with anything. And so what we've replaced him with instead, if you're uh, a, a right wing or Neo, Neo lib, you're probably re you replaced it with consumerism. And I think that if you, if your political ideology lands on, um, on more of an extreme end of the spectrum relative to America, then you probably replaced it with politics and, and banners and causes. I feel like the exclusion of some sort of spiritual aspect has been sort of a detriment to the movement in general. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think that like uh, the in, in the United States, what we've seen is through the the period of capitalism that we know as Fordism, which is you know ends ends probably in the 1970s until what we know now is the period of capitalism called neoliberalism, mm -hmm. there has been a an at first slow winnowing away of community mm -hmm. and focus on the individuation of the the political subject, you know, and then within that becomes hyper realized in neoliberalism where uh, churches, fraternal organizations, community organizations just sort of all go by the wayside. And the Margaret, Thatch the Margaret Thatcher uh, saying that there's no such thing as society really, really takes on a, a full meaning in the United States. And of course, you know, all over the Western world where everyone is an individual, everyone, everyone, the only way that anyone knows how to view the world is through this very atomized sort of uh just individualistic way of looking at things. And we were, we were on that trajectory for a really long time, yeah. but I would say that, you know, neoliberalism um, and the, what, what has been, what is the, what has come about since the advent of the internet um, has actually accelerated that even further mm -hmm. to where we've, uh, we've become brands online and we're, we're all trying to make ourselves into minor celebrities and uh, have all crafted this very, very, crafted very carefully this image that we portray online and uh, have turned ourselves into, into little commodities that uh, we market ourselves online and then are marketed to by like social media 
and are sold by social media. So it's like, that is, I think, accelerated the process of atomization and alienation even further. So like, uh, yeah, I think that we really could have used uh, something like spirituality or religion to help tie us together. Um, well, I think that it going back now at this point, uh, I don't know if, if it's possible to do that, but I am not against the idea of trying. <laughs> well, and I, I think that um, it's a weird thing, our sort of presence on social media, because uh, the, the, on my last podcast, my guest noted that people online aren't called people or individuals. They're called users because we right. are. We're using. But but we're not strictly using. We're also the actual commodity itself, right? We are the product yeah. for advertisers. And so it becomes this sort of, you know, eating your own tail circular uh, trap where whereby we're, we're forming these individual brands because we want to be minor celebrities, as you noted, because there's the allure of sovereignty perhaps if one is able to be that one's own boss if one's able to make money on the internet so to speak uh, right be it doing content that's the goal right right that's the goal and and i think that's just a reflection of how terrible the workforce and and labor is is viewed in mm -hmm. in a modern lens but in the process of that as in the process of making ourselves a brand we're essentially just making ourselves a, a widget you know to, by which we sell ourselves not knowing that all we're doing is giving advertisers a better understanding of our buying habits so that they can circulate back to us more things. So for example, I'm in the ceremonial magic. I may buy a robe. The, the, the Google daddy in the sky knows that I buy this or I buy a wand or I buy something along those lines. And it keeps feeding me these products over and over again, by which I can then further compartmentalize my brand and and specify it and and make it more authentic feeling in in the purchase of in the in the process of co uh, consumerism right and then we just get stuck in this thing and and there the deeper questions that an organization like let's say religion for example would press upon us are lost because we're just stuck in this endless cycle of buying and branding, buying and branding over and over and over again. And it has dulled our sense of wonderment to some degree. Yeah. Um, I would say that part of the project of the enlightenment uh, from the very beginning has been to disenchant the world, to mm. understand it better and to, to remove, to remove some of the more magical and superstitious thinking. Um, and to a certain extent, I think that that's probably a good thing. You know, the scientific revolution was not a wholly negative thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would say that uh, that uh, we have reached a point now, though, where we have so thoroughly commodified every single aspect of our life and every single every single last piece of matter that exists on planet Earth has been so thoroughly commodified that we can see what the excesses of that disenchantment are. And it really looks like the end of the world. So um, I, I think that like um, between that and the, like you were saying, just killing God and not replacing God with anything, because that right there, I mean, I think that when, when you, when you read Marx talk about religion, you know, um, and you can, when you, when I say religion, go ahead and substitute all spirituality for this, because I know a lot of people don't like that word. They're allergic to it, but 
-hmm. really if you're doing an organized magical practice then you believe in gods and deities that's a religion sorry you know it doesn't just because there's not a pope yelling at you to do this or do that uh doesn't mean it's not a a religious experience um but i would say that like when marx talked about religion he said that religion was the heart of the heartless world and the soul of soulless condition it is truly the opiate of the people right so it's like when marx talks about religion he's saying it's an opiate in the 19th century sense meaning it's medicine it dulls right. the pain. It helps you live. It helps you survive. It helps you get by. But he envisioned a world where religion wouldn't be necessary, meaning there would be no need to dull the pain of existence because we would be disalienated from what it was that made us human mm-hmm. um, by realizing a universal commonwealth of all beings, right? And all all human beings, right? So like Marx isn't, Marx never wanted to smash religion and smash spirituality and like drive it out. That was never part of it. The, 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 the whole purpose of Marx's project was to create a world that people wouldn't need to dull the pain with something like religion. Now I maintain that I think Marx was probably wrong and religion never would have gone away. I Mm -hmm. think that religion, spirituality, magic, whatever would have always been a part of it. And because I think that there is a, a yearning deep within the human being that to to experience something bigger than themselves and to to be a part of what is clearly a universal spiritual force that ties us all together, right? Right. So I don't think that that would have ever gone away, um, and I don't think it ever will go away. But. I understand, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, sorry. Um, I understand, you know, why people are allergic to organized religion. You know, religion has done some bad things in the past, and there are still religious people doing bad things now. But the thing is, is that um, the way that we individually relate to our spiritual practices does not have to take on the baggage of what other people a long time ago did, you know? I was going to say, and I think that... um it's in hindsight that we're able to be so critical. I'm not to say that there's not still shitty things that occur now within certain religious groups. You could look at like the rest uh, Baptist church and, and some of the more extremists in that world. But, but truly if you think about it, right. We oftentimes, especially amongst, you know, the quote unquote progressive and young folks, there's this, like, as you noted earlier, uh, sort of an allergy to, to talk about religion or, or, or giving credit to religion because of the bad things that it's done. But under capitalism, consumerism has done as many bad things and, and is actively doing bad things from the perspective of uh, slave labor and ruining the environment and, um, you know, destroying the middle class. You could just go on and on and list all the things that are negative about consumerism. And yet I, I would say that, consumerism in the last 30 years has replaced religion as the opiate of the masses. It is what doles the pain, but I find it to be far, a far less uh, effective medicine than spirituality provided. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that like the, the cult of, of, uh, of the consumer in the United States or what I often refer to as mammonism, um, (laughs) just the, the worship, the worship of accumulation in the United States, I think, is built into the DNA of American Christianity. Um, it, I think it comes to us through the Puritans who come from England, who have this idea of uh, improvement, 
and of accumulation being uh, worship worshiping God. Like if right. you improve your land, if you improve your your factory, you expand your factory, you increase your wealth, you are actually doing God's work. And we we get this very very uh, sort of hyper capitalist form of Christianity that becomes the religion of the United States. It's the official religion of the United States is what I, I, and I get this term from, you know, uh, from this, from Eugene McCarr, who, who wrote this book called the enchantments of Mammon that I think is really great. And I advise everyone to read it. It's all about how capitalism became the religion of mm-hmm. the United States. And, uh, I think that within Christianity within mainstream Christianity in general, and of course, even specifically Protestantism, Protestantism, but Catholics aren't, uh, aren't, really free from this either is that they're really what there is in the United States is not actually Christianity, but it's a worship of money. Mm-hmm. It's a worship of accumulation. It's a worship of consumer goods and of conspicuous, conspicuous consumption. Because I think that this all boils down to this, uh, like sort of culture of narcissism that's encouraged by our atomization and our uh, need to consume things. Um, it's a, like sort of a vicious circle that sort of like, it, like people feel bad because capitalism makes you feel bad. You're alienated from your work. You're alien, you're alienated from your labor. You're alienated from what it is that makes you human. So you buy things that make you feel better. You buy, you get in more debt. <laughs> I mean, it's just like a snowballing effect right. and consumerism is, I think probably since the in the the 20th century since the 20th century has become the most prominent manifestation of that sort of degradation of the American spirit right <laughs> so uh I mean I think yeah so that is all to say yeah I agree <laughs> <laughs> well and it's it's interesting that in America we've turned towards um consumption as a manner of improving our lives our status right we buy land, we buy toys, we buy bigger homes. We're looking to improve our lives through the accumulation of things. And that seems to be the message of consumerism. Whereas with spirituality, be it religion or whatever it may be that you follow, the emphasis in general seems to be not the betterment of oneself through the accumulation of things, but rather the betterment of oneself through an internal process of recognizing oneself as God or being part of God or whatever your specific uh, current of spirituality that you follow and, and the ascension of oneself to what we traditionally call enlightenment, right. Or crossing the abyss. Um, right. As a way of bettering oneself, which would in Apotheosis. theory, yeah, which would in theory remove the need for things as one becomes more enlightened, so to speak, it, because one would recognize that those things don't bring the the promises that they offer. Yeah, um, I think that um, what I'm I'm always going to bring it around to this though. I think that like uh, I I am against, however, the sort of like the usage of religion and spirituality as essentially just self-help right Mm -hmm. like i I think that yeah while that is an important component of getting through the day is just being able to cope and being able to like uh to feel better about yourself because there's just the world makes you feel bad about yourself and we we should all try to like 
you know, uh, harness our fullest potential. But at the same time, it's it it behooves us not to forget what it is that's making us feel like shit. Right. <laughs> right. And I and I think that like uh, to me your religion and your spirituality should spur you forward to make the world a better place as well and not just make yourself a better person. Right. Right. Um, and I think that like, uh, there, there's a strong social justice component in a lot of, uh, the, the mainstream Christian denominations from like Catholicism to Episcopalianism, you know, which is what Anglicanism is called in the United States is Episcopalianism, you know, right. that there is a, a strong social justice component. There is a, a, like the Catholic church is probably the biggest fighter for immigrants in the United States. Right. And the, the Episcopal church has always been very good on LGBT issues. Not always, but they are now very good on LGBT issues. So like, uh, you know, while that's not good enough. And I think that there needs to be an organized, uh, movement of the lower class, the working class that is that is putting pressure on government to change things and, you know, ideally to replace it. But uh, I, I think that, that that needs to exist. But at the same time, I think that our spirituality, our religion or whatever can spur us forward into being involved in those sorts of things. I agree. I, and I feel like one of the things that's occurred is that there's this weird division of spirituality and activism. You know, yes. activism is the focus of making the world a better place and spirituality has been regulated to making yourself a better person, which I do think is important, but it's the marriage yeah. of those two things that could potentially lead the world to becoming a better place or at least your, your small community around you. And um, outside of mainstream religion and particularly Catholicism and the more ancient sort of Christian religions, it feels like that divide has never been wider than before. And, and for, I don't know why we struggle to marry the two things other than people misinterpreting what Marx ultimately said about religion and maybe even more profoundly, people not really being Marxist to begin with. And Oh, and no, they're, absolutely. They're just, they're they're just not. kind of more liberal liberals, kind of. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people think that being a socialist is just being a liberal except more. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, socialism is at its core, uh, an ideology that seeks to transcend liberalism, uh, by, because liberalism is essentially, if you, if I had to boil liberalism down into like one sentence, it is, it would be the, the realization of the individual as the primary mover of society, right. Or of, mm -hmm. of history. Right. So liberalism is hyper individualistic. And I think that there was a point in history where liberalism had some sort of had a, a progressive potential. And I'd mm -hmm. say that potential ended a long time ago. Now, li now liberalism is just the uh, what the, the ruling ideology of the class that's destroying the planet, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I, and I think that within that liberalism, too, is this this holdover of. Anti an anti-clerical hold holdover left from the beginning of the Enlightenment, where the Catholic Church was the bad guy because the Catholic Church was standing firmly behind the aristocracy and the monarchy and trying to keep progress from happening, trying to keep democracy from happening, you know, and it, it absolutely was an impediment to progress. And um, it is so anti-clericalism is inherent in the liberal project. 
and that makes its way into you know marxism it makes its way into all of anarchism it is this very very liberal hostility towards religion that i think now if we if we look at what the what what the situation on the ground looks like right now we don't have monolithic churches that are tied to the state that are trying right. to keep people down churches but amazon is well, right well, well you, jeff bezos is a liberal though um <laughs> but we have uh you know Churches, uh, not all churches, and I'm, you know, churches aren't aren't monolithic, and religion is not monolithic. Neither is Christianity in general. But like, churches are many and varied and very complex. So, like, some churches are good, doing good stuff. Some churches are doing bad stuff. Some churches are doing both. You know, um, um, so I think that like the the idea that religion is something that the left needs to fight against, I think, is silly, and it's. It's like you're LARPing the 19th century still. It that, that's over now, you know. Right. We don't, we don't need to be LARPing. We don't need to. We don't need to have the saying that mankind will not be free until the last priest is stra- the last monarch is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. Uh, <laughs> be, that that which is a that's a Denis Diderot quote, and uh, you know we're we're far past that now. Religion is a, a many and varied uh, thing that I think that we need to make our peace with its existence. Yeah. And I think that there is a, you mentioned sort of there's a, there's a rise of like neo-paganism, which I see a lot online. Right. And I think that's a, a reaction to the, the felt promises of consumerism that a lot of young people are feeling. However, even in that, what I notice is a over-reliance on, consumerism as a part of their spirituality. So you made, you made note of it earlier, right? Everyone's yeah. trying to be a brand and look, we both have podcasts, you know, we're both on, I mean, me more than you, but you know, if you create any sort of art, you have sort of a, a natural byproduct of that is you want people to see it. You want it to have, you want it to have some effect on folks and therefore you have to put it out there. And social media does seem to be the yeah. most um, open way of doing so. But within that, there's the trappings of becoming a mini Amazon, right? Where you're just selling gadgets and gadgets and this, that, and the other. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I don't want to make that claim, especially because you have to survive within the landscape that you were born into. But I do think that there, especially I notice it mostly in neo-pagans, more than ceremonial magicians. But it does seem to be that that sort of movement of like this sort of neo-paganism and and neo-witchcraft is really rooted in buying and selling stuff. And I think that that's, I think that that sort of cheapens it. It sort of removes the teeth of what its true possibilities provide. I would say that like, and I, I say this about traditionalist Catholicism and traditionalist orthodoxy. Um, the same thing goes for, uh, um, you know, neo-paganism um, is, a, this is an attempt to insert meaning into our hollow and meaningless lives. Mm-hmm. And the best way that we know how to do that is to consume. So right. not only do we have our practices and whatnot, but then we've got to consume the things that indicate to other people that we are practitioners of this or that current. And I think that it's an it's an attempt, it's a genuine attempt to do something meaningful spiritually, but it is like all other things in our society, 
tainted by that capitalist consumerism, right? Right. Um, and I think that and I don't fault anybody for like I, I would never advise someone not to be a neo pagan or whatever. Like right. I think that no, not at all. Yeah, I I think that like um none of us is <laughs> none of us is free from sin. So you know <laughs> whoever whoever is can cast the first stone, but it's not going to be me. Um, right. I think that like uh when when you're saying like we we have podcasts we we use social media to promote our podcasts and like you do a lot more things than i do you create a lot more stuff than i do so you you're on you're promoting it a lot more than i am and unfortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> that means that you have to use the the brainworms device you know the the thing that gives you brainworms the internet right yeah. um but i i think that like it's impossible not to it's impossible not to have social media. I mean, it, it is technically, it is possible not to have social media, but not if you want to be connected to the world. Right. And I mean, like employers need you to have social media. Like I need to have social media as an academic to be able to connect with other academics. Um, it's the best and easiest way to find resources in a lot of cases. Like I follow so many people on Twitter and on Facebook who are constantly posting articles and links to uh, databases that I can draw from to study and i I get i get information in a way that like an academic 50 years ago never could and would have to subscribe to several journals in order to do so so like it's just not realistic to expect people to not use social media but i think in the way that sort of talk therapy helps us figure out what our anxiety and ptsd triggers are so that whenever they begin to happen we can like uh take us take stock of what it is that we're responding to and try not to have visceral visceral responses to things we can look at how terrible social media is for our mental health and for uh you know in general just for us in general and try not to be addicted to it and try not to get in flame wars with people over things that we disagree with and try not to let people that look better than us have more stuff than us make us feel bad because that this that's what this would like, um, and I'm, I'm going to drop the name of this book here. The, this book is called The Twittering Machine. It's by Richard Seymour. Uh, it's one of the best things I've ever read in my life. And, and in- I, w- I just want to note that uh, The Incredible Century did, a, was it a four-part breakdown? I think it was a three-part. Three-part breakdown of The Twittering Machine. So even if, because um, sometimes the, the, guy, the things that you guys review are, are a little heady, especially if we're, if we're used to consuming stuff on Twitter and bite-sized yeah. chunks right but i thought you guys did a really good job of breaking breaking the book down and then also applying it to the broader worldview of, of working together so um if yeah as you as you talk about this book if people are interested in what you're saying i recommend finding that series that you, the regrettable century did on the trading machine because i think that it will open your eyes and then maybe engage you that much more to pick the book up for yourself and really ingest this information yeah, um, I, yeah, definitely go listen to our podcast. But also, I think that I just want to. This is a caveat here. I think that the twittering machine is very accessible. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's written for a mass audience. It's not. It's not written to be scholarly. It's not written just for like smart Marxists who've read all the all of the canon of like Lenin, Marx, all that stuff. It's not just. I think this is probably for. It's for people. Um, it, it's for it's for everyone. I think, and it's on Audible too. So if you could download it and listen to it even. But I, so 
his, Seymour's contention is, is that there's no such thing as neutral media. Like mm-hmm. all media has its own agenda behind it. And right. the agenda of social media, as it is currently constructed, is to sell us, sell us like as individuals and to sell us things, mm-hmm. right? So really it, it encourages us to be constantly engaged. So if you look on Twitter, like any anyone who's an avid Twitter user who uses Twitter as part of their business, like e-girls, gamers that stream, people that need to be plugged into Twitter uh, for, for their livelihood will know that 90% of all engagement happens within an hour of each post. So uh, 92% of all engagement happens within the, the hour of the the first hour of the post. So that means you have to post multiple times a day right. in, in order for engage for engagement to be happening all the time. So that also means is that you need to post things that people are going to engage with, because if people are engaging with the things that you post, it's going to move it up to the top of the feed. Mm-hmm. So that encourages you to, you know, post inflammatory things or to, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're an e-girl, you post more scantily clad images, whatever, right. whatever's going to get you the most engagements. And it doesn't care if those engagements are good or bad. Right. And so neither do the people that are doing a lot of the posting, you know? So, um, on top of the fact that it, you are constantly encouraged to keep posting, keep developing content, like all the time you have this addiction that comes along with it. And he talks about social media addiction, the way that he would talk about gambling addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you, you get the dopamine rush from, uh, from the likes, right. Or people admiring you, your, your picture or the witty thing that you posted on Twitter, the whatever funny thing that you funny observation you made, you get the dopamine rush from that. And on top of that, there's something that's even deeper than that. And he he, got, he gets Freudian here and starts talking about the death drive, right? Mm. Which is the drive to self-immolate <laughs> spectacularly <laughs> online, which consumes a lot of people. And these are people that will just like d- post the most destructive or uh, inflammatory content that they possibly can so that they can revel in the hate that's being heaped upon them. And we all know uh, that these people really get a kick out of it. And a lot of right. like a lot of them are just trolls that love people hating them for whatever reason. Well, and it's interesting you know, and I'm not up... here to kink shame. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up gambling as the addiction that, that Seymour equates with social media, because with gambling, the, the conventional wisdom would be that you're addicted to the winning, right? But in fact, yeah. studies show that the gambling addiction is rooted not only in the addiction to winning, but the addiction to losing. It's exactly. the cycle that- of winning and loss that is what actually, if you only won or if you only lost, it wouldn't have that same that same hook on you. And I think that's uh, appropriate for social media because it's not yeah. just the likes that you get addicted to. You get addicted to the haters. Exactly. You get addicted to the trolling. You get addicted to the... Um, to the negativity that a post might make. And and that that cycle of like, everyone thinks I'm smart, everyone thinks I'm terrible, is kind of what becomes addictive a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Twi- um, uh, Seymour talks about this um, in, the, in the Twittering machine as well. Um, he refers to it as an addiction machine and talks about how uh, 
um, as I mentioned earlier, this is sort of like a minor, a drive to become a minor celebrity, like mm-hmm. so that everyone who's got a public profile, everyone who's got a public face is engaged in some sort of minor celebrity. People who don't know you follow you, right? Mm-hmm. So people who don't know you know about you. And it might be an incredibly minor celebrity, but if you really think about like uh, the gig economy <laughs> and right. you really think about the atomization of American society, of course, right? It makes a lot of sense. And one of the things he talks about is how this social media addiction and this drive to celebrity perfectly coincides with uh, mental illness and depression that comes along with being a celebrity of the major sort, right? Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of studies have shown that there is a, there's a direct correlation to negative mental health and suicide that comes right. along with social media usage. And, uh, and he, Seymour talks about how, uh, I, I don't know if I wrote down the numbers or not, but um, celebrities have a much higher rate of committing suicide than mm. regular people do. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and when I, or suicide and death by death from despair, like overdosing on pills or drinking mm-hmm. themselves to death, things like right. that. Uh, Celebrating. Yes. Yeah, celebrities have a much higher rate of doing that. And he says that that directly correlates to minor celebrity as well. So there's this like negative toxic effect that even minor celebrity has on regular people. And, uh, he advises us to log off more often. He says he knows that we can't like get away from social media altogether, but we should do it as much as we can. Just go outside and touch some grass, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because um, I mean, you've, you've known me for a very long time. And so I absolutely have been a person who's always been driven to be engaging and confrontational and dare yeah. say argumentative. And social <laughs> yeah, <a> media, <laughs> sometimes yeah, slightly. Um, social media uh, really encourages that in people. Really, yeah. And so there was yeah. a time period where I deleted my old Twitter just because it was just filled with arguing over stupid shit, like yeah. pro wrestling and and comic books and movies and whatever. So I deleted that and and I aimed to do a fresh start with my current Twitter, which very quickly mm-hmm. devolved into the same behavior as as one does, right? And so what I've tried to do, and this is where I think ceremonial magic has really helped me in a way, because it's allowed me to, it's, it's opened my perspectives and it encourages me at least to be more conscientious about what I consume, not only, not only like buying stuff, but also like just put in my brain, right? Do I, do I watch reality TV or do I watch a, a, a breakdown on ancient, you know, um, not Gnostic material, you know, Gnostic writings that were found you know, however long ago. Um, what I've tried to do with my social media of late, as I've recognized that it, it can bring out the worst parts of myself, right? Whether that's its intent or otherwise, it is the end result is that I've tried to use it as a basis of sharing versus then engaging. And so what I'll yeah. do is I know I know myself that I will get up first thing in the morning and I will doom scroll for an hour before I get out of bed. So I try. Yeah, to, I mean, I do uh, that too. It, it's just, <laughs> it's just this. It's just because I want to consume content, right? Like when I was a kid, I used to read comic books at the table. I used to read magazines. Like I'm just that person. I just constantly must ingest information, and social yeah. media provides a quick, easy manner for doing so. 
And so what I've tried to do of late is instead of just going through and doom scrolling, I set up on my website a list of recommended pages that people who do blogs or they have podcasts like yours or whatever stuff that I think is cool. And I go to that page first and I just check to see if anyone updated. And then I try to share cool shit that I like, like stuff that resonates with me. I try to share and then I try to set the phone down, you know, and um, whether or not that is the I mean, I, I if I'm going to equate myself with an addict, I went from like heroin to methadone or, or nicotine to the yeah. nicotine patch. Right. But I'm at least trying to use it in what I perceive it as being a more productive manner than just going through and finding someone to disagree with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's definitely a good thing. Uh, and you know, since you need, since you need to be involved in social media, I would say that like trying to mitigate the negative effects of it is probably the best thing that you can do because it would, you can't just not be involved in it, you know? Yeah. Um, and nor can I, not if I, uh, want to be connected the way that I am. Um, one of the things that's interesting though, is that like, when you talk about social media encouraging your negative tendencies of contentiousness mm-hmm. and argumentativeness or whatever, right? Which, which, which can be harnessed for good. I, I maintain sure. being argumentative isn't, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, knowing when to deploy it is a whole other story. But uh, I think that the thing about social media is that they don't, it, the, the machine doesn't care if you're using it positively or negatively. It's right. as long as you're getting engagement. So like, you, there are situations where uh, people will pile on someone and bully them into committing suicide. And Seymour lists like a dozen of these instances in this book or of people being like a, a one man that was bullied into committing suicide because his ex-girlfriend or wife uh, falsely accused him of raping children of mm. which there were there was no... There was no evidence of, there was never, there were no allegations of by anyone except her. She created a fake account, made this, uh, accusation. And then, you know, it took on a life of its own and he eventually ended up committing suicide because he was being just harassed so relentlessly both online and in person. And there's right. like half a dozen instances of stuff like that happening because what social media does is it, it takes people's good instincts. Like they hear about this guy's, uh, this guy did this or this guy did that and, uh, the, the people need to be warned about him and you know, it doesn't even matter if it's true or not. You just engage, you, you reshare. How much does, right. how long does it take to reshare a click? And then you, you disassociate from it. You don't need to follow it anymore, but the aggregate of all of those people resharing some false ass information or some true information that could be handled in a much more productive and healthier way turns into a life destroying event for somebody. And, uh, the algorithm encourages this sort of stuff. So the social media, it's, it's not like lynch mobs are a new thing that social media right. has enabled, but at least in a lynch mob, you had to physically go do violence to a person. Right. Social media allows you to be involved in the lynch mob and to get that thrill from being part of, of destroying someone by clicking, you know, that's all you have to do. Yeah. And one of the, one of the terms I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed that it doesn't seem to be in vogue anymore is, slacktivism because (laughs) a lot of what you're describing is sort of that right it's the idea we saw this a lot last year when um the sort of second wave of black Lives matter protests were happening and people were putting the black square up on their instagram and what have you and it seems more and more what passes for activism is in fact just slacktivism it's the it's the click and share 
it's the hashtagging, it's the Twitter pile on, it's all activism that can be done very comfortably from your couch. And, and, um, and as someone who has been engaged in, in organizing or organizing and, and activism in in the way it was traditionally conceived, having been at this for 20 plus years now, when you, when you look online and when you look at the, 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 the digital landscape and you see that so much activism is sort of relegated to just this sort of click and share mentality, what does that say for, for activism as a whole? Like in what, in what state is it even in? Um, I would say that like online organizing isn't organizing, right? It, it gives us the false impression that we're doing something mm-hmm. um, when in actuality, all we're doing is uh, engaging in what I think people used to consider consciousness raising, you know, sharing a story, you know, letting people know. But one of the things that we definitely know is that no one is ever convinced by anything that they, people say on the internet. People <laughs> go into situations already believing what they believe, and then no amount of uh, convincing them changes their mind otherwise. And I think that like uh, what when people do this sort of piling on, right, or this like uh, sharing this or that infographic or um, like exposing this or that predator, they feel as though they're doing something. And while it might be a good thing to expose predators, I'm not saying that it's not. It's also not political work, right? Right. Um, one of the things that uh, there's, there's an, an article called The Anarchist in the Machine in the newest uh, issue of Salvage Journal. And we did an episode on this article in uh, on the Regrettable Century as well, if you guys want to check that out. Which um, is very good. I recommend it. It's It talks all about how um, online organizing and online activism is actually uh, incredibly atomizing ineffective and actually doing the opposite of what it is that we think that we're doing. The promise of the internet is that it was going to create this, like these, these zones of autonomy where we can be together as a, you know, raceless, sexless, uh, just people who can all interact in an egalitarian fashion and exchange ideas and, uh, get the message out in a way that the the mainstream media wouldn't let us and stuff like that. Um, but what has ended up happening now, and this goes back to what Seymour was talking about is all of our internet activism is just content for the content machines. Mm-hmm. Like everything that we do on the internet is recuperated and sold to us in some way. So like uh, on top of that, and on top of the fact that we are, we're, we've gone from having mass organizations of people that all get together for actions for, for like street protests or whatever, which I think are, it's a, it's a whole different story about whether or not street protests are, ineff- are effective or ineffective, but we, mm-hmm. we can talk about that later. Um, but, you know, they, one of the things that the author mentioned, whose name I forget now, and I'm really sorry about that author, uh, is that like online activism allows for an enormous protest to come together without any on the ground work at all. Because you could post a notification and it can be shared around and then an enormous protest can happen. And uh, there's no infrastructure for providing leadership and there's no uh, 
there's no infrastructure for providing solidarity for people who get attacked by the cops who get hurt by the cops. And it basically takes people, plucks people from out of nowhere, from their houses in the suburbs or from their parents' basements or whatever, and throws them into situations which can potentially be violent. And mm -hmm. they, they escalate situations without any kind of organization or network to support them once they once these situations are escalated. So you get people that are arrested by the police who have uh, no access to the solidarity that would come from an organization behind them when they got arrested or people end up in the hospital with, you know, $30,000 medical bills from having their face caved in by a rubber bullet or something like that, you know, and right. there's no organization to help them raise money. So it's further just uh, exacerbates the problem. So what do you do? You make a, a GoFundMe, right? Which right. is just more, more reliance on these machines that further atomize us constantly. I mean, this is a really good article and I don't think I'm doing it justice right now because I didn't sleep very much last night. But the, but the podcast <laughs> that you guys did on it, yeah. I listened to it on my way back from Texas, ironically. And uh, I thought I did a really good job breaking it down. And it's actually one of the reasons why I want to talk to you today because between um, your your series on the Twittering machine and um, the what's this article? The Anarchists, the Anarchist and the Machine, and Anarchist yeah. and Machine, yeah. Like between those two podcasts, I thought you did a really good job of summarizing, or at least raising the awareness of what activism has sort of transformed into in this social media digital age. And um, and I and and the one thing that really stuck out, I mean, you've you've just sort of alluded to it, which is that when so as an example, right now in downtown Los Angeles, I just saw a video of some uh, quote unquote Antifa folks being beaten up by Proud Boys during an anti-mask uh, demonstration. Right. right. The, the Newsom protest. recall protest. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Antifa is a good example of it not being an organization, despite what the media may tell you. It's a loose right. collection of folks who loosely have the same opinion and ideals and who go into situations dressed and presenting themselves as though they are prepared for conflict without any of the organization that would help them provide a good attack. It's almost like sending people to war with no generals or plan or, or map. Even you're just sending young folks with guns and, and camo into a war and say, figure it out. And uh, none of the organization or planning or leadership is there to provide them support, much like the way America runs. I would say that like um, th that style of activism is very, very much so the internalization of the, the atomization of our society now. I think there's a David Harvey says that like, the way the resistance to capitalism often mirrors the way capitalism is structured. So mm -hmm. he talks about the, the Fordist era being like the, the big factories with uh, a, a very highly socialized working class having its opposite in the mass socialist parties that, uh, that attempted to run candidates and had gigantic support networks and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And then now in the neoliberal era, neoliberalism is, is defined by the atomization, the, the utter atomization of the individual in society, right? So everyone is an individual and everyone relates to everything else as individuals. So uh, decentralized organizing 
which is, is often touted as being better than organ or centralized organizing because it's less it's less authoritarian often has the problem of having no coherence and mm-hmm. having a very superficial support network um and uh yeah so i would say that the the neo neoliberal capitalism is mirrored in its in its opposition by a fragmented neoliberal anti-capitalist movement um and i think that like one of the one of the things that happens from from these decentralized movements is that uh without leadership you always have someone without formal democratically accountable leadership you mm-hmm. always have someone who's going to lead and in situations like this it's going to be le- rule by first force of personality right like whoever's around and whoever has the most forceful personality or whoever's got the most time Right. And whoever's got the most time often means whoever doesn't actually have to go to work or whoever (laughs) has the most free time, you know, which doesn't lend itself to uh, a a lot of working class people of color being in positions of authority. Um, uh, But like. Or or um, whoever the media gets to first becomes the figurehead or the face of this movement, which leads to something like the the people that started the Black Lives Matter 501c3 buying a multi-million dollar compound to live in uh, off the backs of the people that they're attempting to organize. Right. You know? And I yeah, think, there's, it, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can see, look, if you, if you, if it's hard to see the forest from the trees, just look at any country that America has gone in and unstabilized or destabilized. And then look what happens in the wake of that, right? When you destabilize any sort of, uh, organized central government in the wake of that it it always ends up becoming uh overtaken by gang rule or or extremist groups and you look at the middle east you could look at like the rise of the taliban and things of that nature like when when we've gone in el salvador we've, yeah we've disrupted yeah. democratically elected governments the the um the result ends up being sort of whatever cult of power, uh, cult of personality can obtain power fastest. Yeah. And, and that's what's referred to on the left as the tyranny of structurelessness where mm-hmm. uh, lack of structure um, will inevitably lead to some sort of unaccountable leadership. Um, and of course there's always the, the anarchist response to that is, yeah, well, what about the tyranny of tyranny? I'm like, that that's a real thing too. And I'm not pretending yeah. like Mar- like Marxists aren't 100% uh, guilty of involving, of, of engaging in dictatorial top-down type of organization. Uh, the organization that I was in for the longest time had a very, very uh, undemocratic way of organizing itself. And it's something that I'm really allergic to now as a result of it. So like, yeah, I mean, we, we recognize our faults and we're, we're trying to, trying to get past those. Do do you find that the, um, the criticism and maybe the, uh, lack of, of confidence in structure, um, as a byproduct of, of capitalism and the, the rugged individuality that it, that it promotes do you find that that is sort of one of the reasons why when there are organizations like let's say the DSA, for example, or something, something becomes the soup du jour, 
that it, it ends up getting rotted out from the inside with infighting and, and claims against one another and canceling and all the stuff that sort of infest institutions or organizations that other, other that leaves them rudderless in a short amount of time. Um, I think that those problems are many and varied and have a very, very long pedigree of problems that date all the way back to the beginning of the organized uh, anti-capitalist movement. Um, I would say that there is a lot of what Americans call rugged individualism or what I refer to as petty bourgeois self-centeredness, you know? Um, I think that like Americans have, we've been trained from the beginning to not see ourselves as collect as a collective, right. Mm -hmm. To not think collectively, to not see ourselves as part of a community um, and to see ourselves more as individuals. Uh, That's part of that fully ingesting that um, internalizing that legacy of the, of the enlightenment where the, the individual is, is like a king in his own castle for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. Right. But um, I think that, uh, within that individualism is the idea of what we call the revolutionary subject, right? So Marxists see the revolutionary subject as the working class, the the, the class that is capable of uh, transcending the need for class and bringing, bringing the future utopian society, right? realizing the utopian horizon. Um, so I think that like a lot of liberals have a very individuated view of the subject, right. Of both the revolutionary subject and of the, the way the subject that, uh, that acts on the world. So it's impossible for these people to conceive of relating to the world in any way other than that of the individual. So right. I think that, that leads itself to the necessity for constant purification of the individual and of like that. And I think that that, that comes a lot from, like I was mentioning earlier is this Puritan idea of, of ostracization and uh, calling out, calling someone out in public for their crimes um, and it's it's carried over through through the progressive movement and in the uh, of the early 20th century and into the new left of the 1960s and now into our into our current uh, epoch. This this idea that we have to constantly purify individuals to make them the best thing that they possibly can be as a way to realize society, uh, realize the utopian society is a very, very liberal thing to do. Mm-hmm. We don't think of like the way that the, the Communist Party would have in the 1930s when there was a conflict between Finnish-speaking workers and English-speaking workers where, uh, or I, I, I'm sorry, Finnish-speaking workers who didn't want uh, black people to come to their, uh, to their cultural events, even mm-hmm. though they were all members of the Communist Party. So the Communist Party said, look, you have to. And we're going to work this out. We're going to we're going to try to figure out um, a way so that you can realize that these black comrades are your brothers and right. are not so different from you that you can't relate to them because we're all workers. 
So they were able to sit down and work on the this problem with racism that existed within the within the Communist Party and overcome it. Now, transport that onto today. You have someone that's got a problematic view, right? Someone who maybe uh, doesn't quite know what they think about trans issues because it's confusing for a lot of people the first time they hear about it, or who uh, has negative views about some sort of minority. Rather than like sit down with them and be like, look, look, comrade, this is why what you're doing is actually destructive and bad. And this is why uh, these things don't actually matter and aren't real divisions and how, you know, we can overcome them. You go, okay, well, fuck this person. That person's problematic. I'm going to call them out online and I'm going to copy and paste all of the negative things that they've ever said in their whole lives. And I'm going to show it to everyone. So like, rather than ever, like, Rather than thinking of someone as part of the collective and a, a person within that collective who contributes in some ways good things, even if they do have bad things about them that they need to work mm-hmm. on, what, rather, rather than that, they're ostracized because it really is – the left doesn't exist. The left is an aggregate of individuals who think and believe similarly. Right. So without this collective idea of betterment, we have this individual idea of betterment. And that's what leads to this rotting out from the center. Well, it's interesting you use the term at the top of that, um, king in their own castle. It reminds me, are you, are you familiar with the song El Rey by uh, Vicente Fernandez? No. It's an old I'm Spanish not. drunk song. And, and the translation of the chorus in English is, with and without money, I always do what I want, and my word is law. I don't have a throne, nor a queen, nor anybody who understands me, but I am still the king. And I feel like that is sort of the mentality of a lot of people um, online. And well, just in general, right? Like we are all, we all believe that we're kings of our own castle, but what we're sitting on is a pile of rubble and shit. And if we could find a way to recognize the similarities and the common goal of the people around us, that collectively we could build something that actually has, that is actually substantial and, and could, and could have some legs to provide a betterment of our individual situation. But we're so inclined to just sit in our little corner of garbage that we, that we'd rather be the king of nothing than to be part of a larger collective or social conscious. Yeah. So with all that being said, um, where where do you feel like socialism or communism exists right now? Like what in what state is it in? I'd asked you this a few days ago, whether or not um, when you look at stuff that's going on in Cuba and and Venezuela and things of that nature, like has communist communism ultimately, as we traditionally know it, has it sort of run its course? Has it has it failed, or is there still the possibility of returning to its its roots and its original goals and finding a new way to implement it. Well, I think that the situation with like Cuba and Venezuela are it's it's very complicated. I I think that like Cuba the the, the Cuban revolution did a, a lot of good for Cuba, right? I think I mean just looking at the liter- literacy rate you know, immediately dissolved the problem of homelessness. Um, 
the the medical situation in Cuba is a marvel, but at the same time, they have been pretty authoritarian uh, throughout their history. And I like to think of Cuba as having been a sort of sort of mutated by the fact that it is next to the malevolent entity that wants to destroy it like 90 mm-hmm. miles away. Right. Um, and looking at North Korea, it's the same sort of thing. Like North Korea technically was at war still with South Korea until like a few years ago. Right. Um, the, these, these uh, egalitarian projects are warped by the fact that they're in constant state of threat by a much, much more powerful entity. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, they're constantly looking for enemies and that leads to inevitable authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. So like, while I wouldn't consider Cuba like a bright shining beacon on a hill that I would, that I would like to emulate, I do want to protect Cuba from um, United States intervention. And I right. think that they've accomplished a lot and they're an example of what humanity could accomplish. Cause look at what a Cuba accomplishes with its meager resources, how much better could we be as the United States? And how much better right. could the world be without the United States always assassinating anybody that's trying to do anything good? Right. So, um, you know, Venezuela is, is similar. Like the blockades of Venezuela and Cuba uh, have had a very negative effect on their economy. And as a result, they've tried to liberalize their economies to be more capitalistic and thus have to compete on the world market for things. And that is having a negative effect. And I think that that's that was that's the intended point, right? Is uh, to crush any kind of vision of a of a possible future that isn't that of capitalism. So uh, Venezuela and Cuba, they've got their problems, and some of those are a result of their DNA going all the way back to the Stalinism of the early uh, of the twentieth century. Some of them are a result of the United States trying to destroy them all the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. some of them are a result of the negative decisions that have been made, the bad decisions that have been made. But still, I I, th- I feel like they need to be defended from American imperialism, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything that's always going down there. Now, whether or not I think that communism has run its course, I think that this vision of communism we had in the 20th century is all but run its course. Yes, mm-hmm. I think that like uh, we've got to revitalize a new form of a new vision of socialism for the, for the 20th century, something that's more explicitly, more explicitly tailored to the needs of the individuals that will be making these societies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the biggest mistakes of the, the world socialist movement of the 20th century was trying to take all of its cues from the Soviet union. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that, that there China at this point has uh, a party that's full of billionaires and is one of the strongest state capitalist powers on the planet. I don't use the term state capitalist very lightly, but I will I will use that for, for China. China has a communist party in power that is presiding over the productive forces of the country uh, that are operating on a capitalist model. Um, uh, I don't know if you have very many pro-China stands on your, uh, the follow your show, but they will be pissed off by me saying that. Um, <laughs> but this but, show pisses people off all the time. It's fine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I think that like, we're going to have to learn from the mistakes of the 20th century and learn from the positive examples of the 20th century in, in order to move forward. I think that the, 
you know, there's there's a lot of positive stuff that we can learn from the Bolsheviks and a lot of negative stuff that we can learn from high Stalinism. And, uh, you know, a lot of examples of how not to organize an economy from late Soviet wastefulness. I mean, um, you know, I think that there's, if you look at the history of capitalism, um, arguably the first stirrings of capitalism happen in the 12th century in Northern Italy and Florence and Venice. And then we have in the night or the 18th century, the, the capitalist democracy is fully coming into fruition with the United States and France and, you know, the, the, the countries that followed after them. So how long is that, you know, right. Like 700, 600 years, 700 years before, before the, the capitalist democratic model fully encompassed the globe and became the dominant model of the economy. I'd say that, you know, we've, we've had our hiccups in the beginning, but if the world stays around long enough, (laughs) big if that's, and that's a big if, and I'm not, I'm not hopeful. Um, then maybe we'll have another chance to try to, to create a more equal and more equitable society. One that puts human need before profits and, you know, that, that's, that's what, that's what I, that's what I hope for, but you know, you can hope in one hand and whatever else, right? <laughs> uh, it is very important that we take a realistic view of what our prospects on the ground look like right now. And civiliza- civilizational collapse isn't off the table and having no hope in society as the way it is now is necessary for us to be able to, to begin to, to conceive of a future on the other side of capitalism. So I, I encourage everyone to embrace pessimism, uh, a <laughs> pessimism for the world as it exists now ever getting better. Without some sort of drastic change, we're doomed. But that's a dialectical pessimism because within that pessimism are the seeds of hope and are the seeds of an optimism. But that pessimism in our politicians and our leaders and these political parties and the capitalists turning things around for us. Uh, we have to fully be fully pessimistic of that happening in order, in order for us to have uh, an optimism that flowers on the other side of it. I, I agree. I mean, I think, um, I think too often people feel like we're just like, uh, the, the system is broken, right? Or the system is, uh, if, we, if we could just swap out X, Y, and Z leader, then everything will be good again. And I think that it's very easy for us to look backwards. That's that individualism again. Yep. Look backwards at a time, usually of our youth or or teenage years, as that being the time when everything was great, which in reality, if we were transported back in our current age with our current experiences, we'd probably look at that part of society and and recognize the the failures that it was presiding or presenting rather. But um, we do need to change. We do need to change. And I think I I think it's it's a worthy cause to challenge people to not only see the world without the the color of optimism that we're just a, a few tweaks away from getting it right and i also think it's it's, it's daddy a, musk it's a, is going to save us you mean yeah yeah and we see it right we see like the 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 movement towards technomancy that has sort of become very mm-hmm. popular lately like our the our version of tony stark is going to save the world somehow by some sort of technological marvel when in fact 
even in your most optimistic view of how technology has worked in our world, at very least, it's it's it is not inclined to make the world a better place for the most part. You know, whether that is a yeah. side effect of its existence is neither here nor there. It does not have that. That's not its main um, purpose for existence. And I think that uh, challenging folks to to face that reality and to and to try to think deeper and to try to really analyze the world as it is and and then see what's missing from it, right? How can you fix something if you're not looking at it ad- accurately? What things are lacking? I, I would argue um, a true sense of community and society. I think institutions that organize I think leaders who who speak in manners that are not only profound but also are open for engagement versus just hitting one uh, one viewpoint over you know over the head and and never wavering right I think that we have we have a real lack of leaders and organizers and we ourselves are lacking in that because we feel like we're doing enough with a simple click yeah. Um, yeah. So in conclusion, internet bad. I don't know if it's bad. I don't know that it's bad per se. I think that, um, look, I, there's a, there's an old George Carlin joke that says, if you're mad at politicians, where do you think they came from? They're you, right? If you look at politicians, they come from the same neighborhoods, the same churches, the same schools, the same cities. They're just us. If you don't like it, we have to change. If you look at this, if you look at the internet, so uh, go ahead. Oh no, no, no! I just, I was gonna just make a dumb joke about <laughs> Hegel. Uh, he ta- he talks about um, Napoleon being the world spirit on horseback. Napoleon was the <laughs> he he refers to Napoleon as the 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 spirit of the age being personified as a human being who was smashing the old monarchies, tearing us under the old order and leaving uh, the spirit of the, the French revolution in its wake. Um, um, and I think that Trump is our world spirit on horseback. He I is, agree. He, the, the decrepit, selfish, narcissistic, sclerotic, stupid world spirit on horseback. I think that I mentioned this last podcast, but um, you watch True Detective, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know the tagline for season two? I know season two wasn't as good as season one, but the tagline for season two was, we get the world that we deserve. And I always resonated with that because we do. If we're not willing to make changes within ourselves, if we're not willing to encourage changes amongst those that we're closest to, if we're not willing to build coalitions and and find community, then why would we expect someone to just rise from the ashes and save us all? Well, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that like... Uh, Unless Jesus comes back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, we can always hope for the second coming. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I agree. Like, I don't necessarily know if we deserve Trump, but it maybe we do... Mm. Maybe maybe humanity has fallen so low that we deserve Trump. It's it's hard not it's hard not to be misanthropic. Uh, right. But I, I encourage you I encourage you to fight that fight those feelings of misanthropy. Um, but yeah, 
But, but I mean, I think there's, and I don't want to go on a tangent of Trump. We're getting close to the end here, but like there is, I mean, there's an unhealthy relationship that America has with Trump right now. If you're, if you're a fan of him, there's almost no way of being a fan without being fanatical. And if you're not a fan of him, there's almost no way to interact without acting like a jilted lover. You know, there's still people talking about it on either side months later. Right. Yeah. Um, and we, and we got an off a guy in office who's doing the same shit that Trump was doing. Yes. He, did he free those kids in cages yet? I don't think so. I know he gave cops more money. Yeah. So is that. Oh, Hey, black lives matter. Hey, my favorite thing is pulling 2,500 <laughs> troops out of Afghanistan and then within hours sending 3,000 troops to Afghanistan. That was, that's my favorite. That's just that's just bold. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, man, that's ch- change we can believe in. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, okay, like we've talked a little bit about the world stage, but for the average bloke, like if, if, if folks are, I mean, cause I do believe that even online activism or slacktivism or all that, like you mentioned earlier, it does generally come from a good place. I think I'd like yeah, to, yeah, absolutely. That deep down in the core, we are trying to do something good, but it's hard. I mean, I, again, no, this isn't throwing shade about people online. It's just challenging them to, to do more and be more efficient, but I get it, man. I get why it would be hard to go to rally when people are shooting rubber bullets at your face or proud boys are beating you up or you've got to work, you know? I get all that. I get yeah. how much easier it is to feel like you're doing something with just a click of a button. But for those who, who generally look around and say, I'm not happy with this, this, this is not working. Like what are some localized things that folks can do that can start the path of making a difference? Well, I think that that's a hard thing because I think that as individuals, there's not really not much we can do. Um, that that will actually make an impact. I would say like the best thing that we can do is try to help each other out. Like I think that tenants unions are a good idea. Try mm-hmm. to organize with the people that live in your building to keep ridiculous uh, rent hikes from happening. I mean, try to just build community in any way possible. I'd say that if you're in a workplace that could be unionized, unionize your workplace because I think that there's going to come a time when things are going to get really bad economically, environmentally, and these networks of you know working class people that we have through our unions, through through our neighborhoods, through our communities, through our you know our, our workplaces, our religions are are going to be how we get together to keep things from getting worse and to make things better. Um, honestly, uh, if, if I, if I could say, I'd say join your mass socialist party, but we don't have one. I mean, (laughs) the closest thing we have is the DSA, which is hardly a party and is really just a a gigantic mess of different conflicting ideas that don't, that are incapable of coming up with like a coherent, like, uh, way forward. Um, and all the, the close, the best thing that they could come up with is just to support the progressive Democrats, which I think we've seen is, is a waste of time. Right. So like, really, I would say unionize your workplace, start a tenants union with your, the people that live in your building. Um, I don't know, just get to know your neighbors for one. 
Right. Um, but nothing beats the organized working class. And I would say that the best thing that we could we could possibly do is uh, just organize as workers, you know, organize I, your workers. I would just add to that that um, recognize the the commonality of oneself with other people in the working class, rather than so further division amongst ourselves. I mean, so much of what divides us and and leads to tribalism in America is these is these petty arguments over things that um, I'm not saying they don't matter, but I am saying that there's strength in numbers and working class folks, be them Republican or Democrat or anywhere in between, have far more in common with their day-to-day lives than they do differences. And you mentioned earlier, pulling a comrade aside and saying, hey, what you're doing is not cool, or it's not working, or this is why it's damaging. I yeah, think that's pull impossible. your comrades aside. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's impossible to do, to, to unify if you're holding everyone to an impossible standard. And, and when I say pull a comrade aside, I mean exactly that one-on-one pull someone aside and have a conversation. Don't put people on blast for your own, you know, for your, your own self, your own ego stroke, you know, recognize that if we're gonna, if we're gonna unionize, if we're going to form a collective of any sorts, it has to be done together, and that means you're going to have to deal with and work with and figure out conflict res- uh, resolution with people who might have differences than you and who might have different faiths or slightly different views on how to approach a problem. I, I would assume that at every stage of communism, socialism, and the like, there has had to be that conflict resolution that has had to occur, and we've moved away from the need for or the desire for that. And I think that that's super important. And I, and I, I, you know, you and I being from Texas, it's always frustrating when we hear people do uh, rural stereotypes and Southern stereotypes and the dismissive nature that people Mm -hmm. who live on the coast have towards working class people. And I think that we have to move away from that. And we have to recognize that even those people who are not wearing a mask or those people who are, um, whatever, maybe they don't quite understand every, every social identity issue as well as you do, or in the same way that you do, that those right. people are the people who will be lockstep with you to try to make the world a better place. And if you're divided, well, then you might as well just accept the impending doom and hope for an asteroid. The only dream I have is for an H-bomb to come and blow us fucking up so you don't have to hear me bitch anymore. <laughs> but if people want to hear you bitch, where can they find you? <laughs> Uh, find us on uh, Twitter, which we never use. Uh, it's the Regrettable Century uh, or Grand Radio Abyss is our actual Twitter handle. But if yeah, you just right. Google the Regrettable Century, the Regrettable Century uh, on Twitter, you know, I guess we have a Facebook page. I mean, we we're very bad with social media. Um, <laughs> uh, we we never update our social media. But we also have a Buzzsprout page, which is where we host everything, and that's at if you just Google the Regrettable Century. Uh, you, you'll find us, I promise. <laughs> and and when do your when does your podcast come out typically? Uh, we do biweekly generally, um, and we try to get it out on Monday, but it's usually Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday when we put it out. We're we're very lackadaisical. We're we're very disciplined when it comes to reading, but we're not very <laughs> disciplined about when it comes to putting out our podcast. <laughs>
But so, I do recommend people listen to it because I, I think you all do a really great job of breaking down concepts and relating it to today. You know, you're not just living in academia. You're you're relating it to the world around us. And I feel like it's a little bit of a lost art to go back and, and read some of these these older academic books and apply them. You know, sometimes people just, I think on this last podcast, the Hegel one, someone mentioned like using buzzwords from an established author or, or, or personality and using it, not understanding it, but using it for their own, for their own purposes to push their own agenda. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to go back and understand within context, what these folks were saying and why they were saying it, and then see how that applies to modern day and then go from there. Well, thanks. Um, I think that we try really hard to, to be like, uh, reading all this theory and all this history and stuff is, isn't for everyone, but it is for us. We like, we like it. <laughs> so if, if we can, you know, as, as a person who's training to be a professor, uh, I, I want to be able to take stuff that I know a lot about and distill it to this most important components and tell people about it. Uh, in a way that's entertaining. So like it, it's, it's very gratifying to hear you say that we do a good job of that. Um, so like, yeah, if you, if you're into listening to some nerds talk about theory in a, in a way that it isn't totally just academic. Yeah. I guess come on over. <laughs> yes. I recommend it. And, and also you have a Patreon, which is very, uh, it's like what a cup of coffee, less, less. It's like things. two bucks. It's I, yeah. yeah, it's, it's like a cup of coffee at Denny's. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's, it's the bottomless bucks. well, bottom, bottomless you coffee, Dennis. You get what you pay for, though. That's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like whenever whenever people unsubscribe from our Patreon, I'm like, what the fuck? It's two dollars. We put out at least one show a month. Is that isn't that worth two dollars? Uh, but no, we we actually have started doing reading groups recently, um, and we uh, we just did a six episode arc on a book called Nihilist Communism, which is uh. It's a very interesting read, and I, I recommend uh, people check it, check out us talking about it. And um, the book's got its problems, but we help break those down and talk about how we disagree with it. But yeah, we did we did six episodes. We did it one episode a week for uh, six weeks. So like, if that's worth two dollars a month for you, come on over to our Patreon. <laughs> and and I also recommend we talked about it earlier, which I think is the most recent podcast. Um, uh, it's kind of broken up. Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition. You've done a, a three-part series on that. It's a three-part series, and we're on part two right now. We're going to record part three, I think, next Saturday. I'm very but, quickly uh, yeah. for those who, who might be interested in Hermeticism and how that might relate to Hegel. What was your general takeaway from that as a, just a, as a teaser for the, the three-part series? So Hegel is a notoriously hard-to-understand philosopher. Um, he's considered probably the greatest Western philosopher. Uh, well, at least I consider him the greatest Western philosopher, but uh, by a lot, by many people he's considered to be the greatest Western philosopher, but also one of the, the philosophers that's hardest to understand. So um, I've tried to read Hegel before and I've been un- unsuccessful. I've never completely gotten through uh, the phenomenology of the spirit, which is his like, you know, seminal work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but reading this book, Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition really helps to sort of put things in context. It talks all about how a lot of the language that Hegel uses is taking, taken straight from people like Paracelsus or 
Cornelius Agrippa or Jakob Böhme, um, who are hermeticists and alchemists and magicians. And um, it sort of puts Hegel in the context of the, the, the 19th century Protestant occultist movement, which was vibrant where he's from. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually helps under, it helps understand a lot, me, it helps me anyway, and a lot of other people from what I understand, helps them understand concepts that Hegel scholars have been getting wrong. So uh, if you're interested in Hegel, and Hegel was very influential on Marx, and is very influential on uh, people like Slavoj Žižek, who is probably the most famous philosopher in the Western world at this time. Uh, if you're interested in Hegel and you're interested in magic and hermeticism, uh, check out this book, first of all, and second of all, our podcast series that we're doing on it. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, you're one of my oldest friends, and I appreciate the time coming on and sharing a little insight on the world. Uh, again, I can't recommend that people listen to The Regrettable Century enough. I think they will come away from it profoundly impacted, and hopefully it encourages them to get hungrier for that level of content and philosophy and thinking of the world in a little bit of a more meaty terms than we typically do in our sort of quick bite, single serving lifestyle. So I appreciate the time. Uh, Check out the regrettable century and thank you, Chris, once again, for coming on the podcast and hope to chat with you soon. Thanks for having me. I had a, I had a blast. Thank you once again to Chris from the podcast, the regrettable century for taking time out of his day to join us and to break down not only what his own podcast is about, but some of the issues that we're dealing with today. I think that, you know, outside of punk rock, Chris was really my biggest influence politically uh, as far as my political ideology is concerned and continues to be today. I regularly listen to The Regrettable Century. Uh, I think that they, 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 they're they able to take uh, beliefs and philosophies and, and break them down and distill them in a way that I always find really engaging and challenging to myself and makes me think about the world at large in a different manner. I think that the you know when you look online and you see folks with the roses in their Twitter bios or in their handles what have you and you know people presenting themselves as progressive you got to I look at someone like Chris and I say that this is a person who goes beyond Chris is one of those people who goes beyond what you typically see online, you know, people with roses in their Twitter bios or and their handles, Chris is, I, because I've known him for nearly 25 years now, he has put the work into labor organizing. He has put the work into being part of discussion groups. He has put the work in in terms of being part of uh, on-the-ground protests. I mean, this is not someone who, who, as we talked about in the podcast, sort of sits behind their keyboard and just presses send. This is someone who's done the work for many, many years, long before it was fashionable. And uh, he's earned, in my opinion, he's earned the stripes to be able to speak intelligently about some of the I- issues that challenging us, and especially for those who espouse a more leftist or progressive mentality uh, or ideology, rather. I think that it would it would serve us all well to at least listen to the perspective of someone who has been doing the work for longer than some folks have been alive and has been doing it actively day in and day out and and also continuously and also continuing to increase their own education and really putting their really putting their money where their mouth is i think chris does 
I think he does an amazing job of always looking to increase his own knowledge. Um, he's he's well-versed in academia, philosophy, and history, and it shows with uh, the, in the way that he approaches any topic. And I appreciate that thoughtfulness from him, and I appreciate his perspective, and how his perspective has changed over time, as it does for most of us. So I thank you guys, once again, if you're interested at all in um, social activism, um, the Regrettable Century podcast is a very good podcast to listen to. It's one of the best that I've found, not just because he's my friend, but because I think that it, it comes from a position of folks that are actively working in those spheres and have been for many years. And so you know there's a, there's a legitimacy behind what they say. They're not, they've been doing it long before podcasting and, and online presence was popular. And because of that, they've really earned the respect of me. And I hope uh, after listening to this podcast, the respect of you. So thank you once again, Christopher, uh, from The Regrettable Century. I appreciate your time and you as my friend. And I hope that you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And until next time, gold rings on you all.